Well, this is our um, fifth week in this series that we're calling Mission Critical. We're working our way through uh, the tail end of, of Matthew chapter 9 and all the way through Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is sending his 12 disciples on a critical mission to be agents of God's healing love in the world. Uh, this passage begins with Jesus being uh, overwhelmed with the size and the scope, the breadth and the depth of the need that he sees all around him all the time. And in response, he calls his 12 disciples to him and he endows them with his power and authority and he sends them out, literally, he sends them out to be Jesus to a world in pain. He sends them out with, with two responsibilities and these are the same two responsibilities that we've been exploring, you know, that we have in our lives as those who want to live to follow Jesus. He sends them out to number one, tell people about the healing love of God that is breaking the world, the God's kingdom that is coming into our reality so that uh, life happens on earth as it is in heaven, how God would have always wanted it to be. Tell people that because of God's healing love, he is reconciling people to himself again. That uh, because of God's love, he is pouring forgiveness onto our guilt, he's, he's pouring intimacy into our alienation, our sense of distance from him so we can love and feel loved by God again. God is pouring healing into our souls, into ourselves, so we can experience a love for ourselves again so that he's pouring joy into our uh, sorrow and hope into our despair and light into our, our darkness. Pouring healing into our relationships with each other so we can love each other again and live in healthy relationships again so we can have friendships where friends stick closer than family. Families where marriages are vibrant and alive and, and families that are strong and stable and communities that are supportive and connective and inclusive and hospitable. He's pouring healing into our relationship with the world. So we can love the world again, filling it with peace and hope and joy and abundance and justice and equality for all poor, uh, you know, uh, justice for the poor and equality for the oppressed and peace in the face of conflict. The making the world the way God always wanted the world to be, making the world the way the world should be if God were in charge. He sends them out to tell people about the healing love of God that's breaking into the world through Jesus, but to do more than that, to enact the healing love of God, to be a part of the healing that is taking place in people's lives, to be a part of reconnecting them in relationship with God, to be, to be a part of the healing that's taking place in their bodies and their souls, to be a part of the healing that's taking place in relationship, to be a part of the healing that's taking place in our world. But he says to them, and this is what we began to look at last week, he says to them as he sends them out, this mission that you're going out on is going to be anything but easy. In fact, as you look back over some of the terrain that we've covered, you see this escalating element of danger or hostility that emerges in the text. Uh, in the text we looked at uh, two weeks ago, um, in verse 10, Matthew 10, verse 14. I mean, Jesus is talking about how 
at times the disciples who are going out are going to be dependent on other people's hospitality and, and generosity in order to provide them with everything they need. And right in the midst of that, Jesus says this, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Jesus says, listen, there are going to be times when you run into rejection. When they're going to be, you know, random strangers who don't want to have anything to do with you, who don't want to have anything to do with Christ, who don't want to have anything to do with your message, and who are just going to kind of push you away. And when it happens, Jesus says, because it's going to happen, he says, just, you know, dust the sand off your feet. It was sort of a ancient Jewish equivalent to washing your hands. Just wash your hands of the situation and, and move on. Don't worry about it, just move on. And then the text we looked at last week, Jesus ratchets up the intensity a little bit. And he says, listen, there's going to be times when living life on mission, telling and being the healing love of God in the world, there's going to be times when you're going to run afoul of religious people and religious institutions who don't like the way you believe and don't like the way you behave and don't like the way you're living life on mission. There are going to be times when you run afoul of secular people and secular institutions who are going to believe that the mission that you're on to bring the healing love of God into the world cuts across the grain of their agenda and it could get ugly he says there are going to be times when you're going to have to stand up and answer for your faith you're going to have to find the words to say to explain to somebody what you believe and why you believe it and why you're living the way you're choosing to live and when Jesus says when that happens don't worry because the Holy Spirit will speak through you and he'll give you the right words at the right time to say to the right person in the right way so that God's purposes can be accomplished in that conversation. But in the text we're looking up today, Jesus ups the ante again. He ratchets up the intensity again. In verse 21, he says this, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus says there'll be times when you live your life on mission, when you will find yourselves running afoul even of your own family. Even of the people who supposedly love and support you, even of the people who were supposed to be for you and with you no matter what. There'll be moments, he says to his disciples, when they're the ones calling the cops and having you arrested and pressing charges and having you prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, your own family. In fact, Jesus says it's worse than that. You'll be hated by everyone. Because of me. Now, he doesn't mean every single individual that we encounter. There are many people, even in Jesus' ministry, who were excited to hear what Jesus had to say. But what he means is everywhere you go, on every front, there will be all kinds of people who will direct hostility towards you because of me. It's just the price of doing God's business of being Jesus to a world 
in pain. In fact, Jesus says, if you're going to be about me, if you're going to be imitating me in the way you bring the love of God into the world, then expect people to treat you just like they treat me. In verse 24, he says this. He says, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Jesus says, listen, I'm the master and you're the servant. He says, I'm the rabbi and you're the disciple. I'm the teacher and you're the student. You learn from me to do what I do. And if you're going to do what I do, expect to be treated the way I get treated. If you look back over the previous chapter in Matthew chapter 9, you begin to see the first inklings of opposition to Jesus' ministry. Jesus gets accused of heresy and blasphemy. Jesus gets criticized for hanging around with sinners and riffraff and all the wrong kinds of people. Jesus gets criticized for not being religious enough. Uh, Jesus, uh, in that chapter, gets laughed at for believing that the healing love of God could miraculously transform a little girl's life. Jesus gets slandered, and people say that the miracles that he does, the power comes from the devil, not from God, that he's practicing the dark arts, which is why Jesus says, if they call me Beelzebul, what are they going to call you? Beelzebul is one of the Jewish names for the Satan which, by the way, isn't a name, it's a title. It means the accuser. It, Beelzebul was the commander of the demonic armies. And Jesus says, listen, if that's how they treat me, if that's what they call me, if this is the, what happens to me, and I'm the rabbi, I'm the master, I at least deserve a little bit of respect, what are they gonna do to you, a mere servant, a mere student, a mere disciple? They're gonna have no mercy on you. You commit yourself to a life of being Jesus to a world in pain. And you will find yourself in pain on account of the mission of Jesus. And we know it because it's happening all over the world. Even as we sit here this morning. It happened in Ho Chi Minh City last fall. Where a Bible school situated there in the capital for the seventh time was seized by the government and destroyed. In fact, it happened in one province in China in particular where a provincial governor, it seems, is trying to curry favor with the, the Buddhist president of China. And in one city alone, this governor seized 200 or attacked 231 churches. Uh, Seizing the, or, or, yeah, seizing the property of some, destroying others. It happens in Africa, Chad, Cameroon, Nigeria, anywhere that Boko Haram has been. The name literally means Western education is a sin, and by Western they mean Christian. You may remember that last April they kidnapped 200 Christian girls, most of whom have never been seen since. In the last five years, Boko Haram has killed literally thousands of Christians and moderate Muslims. It happens in Iraq. Did you know that in 2003, before the invasion of Iraq, there were 1.2 million Christians living in Iraq. And now, since the rise of extremist Islamism, uh, in the wake of the invasion of Iraq and of Afghanistan, 
Two-thirds of the Christians in Iraq have either fled or been killed. There's fewer than 400,000 Christians because of groups like ISIS. And more than 100,000 Christians fled Iraq just last summer alone. Lord, give strength and courage and peace and hope to safety to our brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering because of your name. And I hate, I hate to even use the word persecution to describe what happens to us lest we try and compare it to what's happening to them. But there is hostility and mistreatment even here for people who choose to live on a mission of being Jesus to a world in pain. It'll come in the form of, of mockery and criticism just for being a Christian and for believing in Christ. It'll come in the form of losing friends and family because you insist on living faithfully to the mission that Christ has called you to. It comes in the form of being lied about and have your reputation destroyed. It comes in the form of being passed over for promotion at work because you refuse to participate in the shady side of business. It comes in all sorts of forms. You cannot escape it, Jesus says. If you are faithful to living the mission of being Jesus to a world in pain, you will experience hostility and mistreatment at the hands of other people, which led me this week to grapple with this one poignant question. Why does it not happen to me more? I guess it's possible that uh, we just live in the kind of culture that ex- expresses the freedom of religion and values tolerance and so on, but it might also be the case that I'm not living the mission radically enough to stand out from the rest of the world. Now, I don't think Jesus wants us to go courting persecution and mistreatment. I don't think he wants us to create it. I think some people do that. I think some people treat this kind of mistreatment like a badge of honor. And so they actually posture themselves in really provocative and brash and even harsh, even rude ways in order to inspire mistreatment in response. I'm thinking about groups like Westboro Baptist Church, the, you know, the God Hates Fags Church, that, that is provocative and offensive and then receives hostility in return and then cries persecution. That's not persecution. It's not the offense of the gospel that's creating the hostility. You're just being offensive. I don't think Jesus wants us to create it. He says, be as shrewd as serpents. He says, don't be dumb in the way that you live. Don't don't create unnecessary problems for yourselves by being unwise about how you live the mission. I think the church does this in the conversation between faith and science. And I don't know where you come down on the issues or what your personal beliefs are, Uh, about things like creation and evolution and so on. But I think the church has created unnecessary hostility by the way that the church has participated. I mean, the church in general has participated in the conversation. Come across as closed-minded and anti-scientific and we've made church and Christ a laughingstock in our culture. Jesus says, be innocent as doves. Live with integrity, be blameless. Don't get into the shady business dealings. I think we shoot ourselves in the foot with this all the time. And it's not just 
pedophile priests and shady televangelists. It's the way we do business. It's the times when we are not accepting and hospitable, when we're judgmental and hypocritical. I think, in my opinion, again, the church has damaged itself in this way in its relationship with the LGBTQ community. Draw whatever conclusion you want about uh, what the Bible says about the rightness or wrongness of it. There is no way anyone would ever mistake the church in general of having been loving towards the gay community. We haven't been enough like Jesus and we have generated hostility because of it. Jesus says, don't court it, don't create it, but don't be afraid of it either. In fact, the whole rest of this text is Jesus providing three do not be afraid, three reasons why we don't need to fear the hostility and mistreatment that would come if we would be radically devoted to living the mission of being Jesus to a world in pain. The first one is this, verse 26. He says, so don't be afraid of them, the people who will mistreat you. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. And what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Um, It's cryptic saying. But I think Jesus is talking about his message that God's healing love is breaking into the world and reconciling people in their relationship with God and in their relationship with themselves and in their relationship with each other and in relationship with the world so that we can love God and love ourselves and love each other and love the world like we were always meant to so that this world can become the place that God always intended it to be the kind of place that would make sense of what the world would look like if God were allowed to be in charge. And Jesus is saying, that's what's happening in the world. God's love is, is slowly but surely reshaping our reality to become a place of peace and joy and love and hope and beauty and abundance and justice and equality and love. But it doesn't always look that way. Watch the evening news. You won't get the impression that that's what's happening in the world. It's amazing to me that so many people believe that the world is getting worse when Jesus says, actually, the world is becoming more of the kingdom of God if you know how to look. The problem is that so much of it is concealed and so much of it is hidden and so much of it is for people who have eyes to see. But Jesus says, the day is coming. When what is concealed will be revealed, when what is hidden will be disclosed, the day is coming when all people will recognize God's kingdom coming into the world, the world being reshaped by love until finally one day Jesus returns and recreates our entire planet so all the world is finally and fully forever the way God always wanted it to be and humanity who believes gets to live in the presence of God for all of eternity. Jesus says that day is coming. The end of the story has already been written. So live like it. Proclaim from the rooftops, live openly and generously the healing love of God that is already infiltrating our world that will one day take over and transform everything. You already know the end of the story that love wins in the end. So since you know that those who are on the side of love are on the side of victory, then why don't you just live a life of love and not be afraid of what happens in the meantime? Because regardless of how the game 
game looks at the end of the second period, you already know that you win in the end. Don't be afraid because love wins. Secondly, he says, don't be afraid because God is better. Verse 28, he says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but who cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Isn't that encouraging? Don't be afraid of people because they'll just like kill you. You should be afraid of God because he'll throw you behind in hell, right? Yay, we get to live for Jesus. Uh, That's not what Jesus, it's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Not entirely. What he's saying is this. He says, you can live your life. He says, what's the worst? I want you to imagine this thought experiment. What is the the worst thing that a person can do to you? And kill you, right? But if they kill you, if they steal the life from your body, Jesus says, the only thing that's happened is they have affected your external circumstances. That's all they've done. They've affected your external circumstances. They haven't touched you. They haven't touched the real you, the inner you. They haven't touched your soul, the part of you that loves God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, the part of you that's gonna return to the presence of God after you die. They haven't touched you. They haven't affected you. They've done nothing to the real you. So who cares? Who cares if you lose a few dollars along the way? You can't take it with you anyway. Who cares, you know, if you, um, if you, you get lied about or laughed at and people spoil your reputation in the meantime? God knows who you are, truly. Who cares, you know, even if you lose a job or you lose a friend or a family member, as awful as that is, I don't want to downplay how awful it is and how much it hurts to lose relationships and how stressful it can be to lose a job or any of this. It's not that it doesn't hurt. It's just that it's not the ultimate thing that matters. Jesus says when when people rob us, when they damage us in our external circumstances, it's kind of like dropping a $100 bill on your way to cashing a winning lottery ticket. You wouldn't even turn around to pick it up. Because in the ultimate reality, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, don't be afraid of people who can only damage your external circumstances. He says, and he does this little word play, he says, but fear God, worship, revere, submit to, obey God who has power over both your body and your soul. He says the power to throw it in Gehenna. No, he doesn't say hell. He says Gehenna which is a literal, physical, geographical location outside of the city of Jerusalem where the Jews once experienced the judgment of God when God sent an invading army to destroy the capital of Jerusalem and corpses were thrown over the wall into the valley of Hinnom called Gehenna and they were set on fire and a judgment that they experienced in time and space within the scope of their lives was referred to as the judgment of Gehenna. It became metaphorical to describe all sorts of kinds of God's judgment, both in this life and afterlife and so on, but it doesn't mean what we mean when we use the word hell. Basically, the whole point of the text is not even that God will judge or how God will judge. The point of the text is this question. Are you gonna live your life in fear of people or are you gonna live your life fearing God? Worshiping and serving him. Are you gonna live your life afraid of what 
people will do to you or are you gonna live your life in the fear of God of what God can do for you? Are you gonna live your life for what people and this world can give or are you gonna live your life for what God can give? Are you gonna be a people pleaser or a God pleaser? Because when you live life by God's priorities, you win in the end. God is better than anything this world has to offer. Don't be afraid because love wins. Don't be afraid because God is better. Don't be afraid because God loves you. It says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. Even the very hairs on your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. The sparrow is the smallest animal sold in the Jewish market for food. It's bought only by the poorest of the poor because that was all they could afford. Two sparrows got sold for an Assyrian, which was a, Jew, a Roman copper coin that was worth one sixteenth of the day's wages of the poorest person in Israel, of the poor, poorest laborers in Israel. It's about a half hour's pay. Jesus says, you can go to the market and you can buy a sparrow for about two or three bucks. One, you can get two for five or six. And he says, and yet, not one of those sparrows was trapped and killed and hung in the marketplace without God knowing, without God noticing, without God being attentive, without God caring, without God being there and how much more do you think God cares about you God cares about you in ways that you don't even care about you God in knows you intimately in ways that you don't even know you intimately he says even the hairs on your head are numbered God knows how many hairs you have on your head he knows how many you've left in the shower he knows how many are caught in your brush he knows how many have been stuck on your tongue he knows how many have fallen into somebody's spaghetti he knows the story of every hair on your head he knows you that intimately and cares that deeply about the minutest detail of your life because he loves you more than he loves a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand sparrows and so no matter what your life brings because of your commitment and devotion to living the mission of being Jesus to a world in pain no matter what happens in your life God is there and he's with you and he notices and he's attentive to you and he cares and he will love you all the way through it. He will never leave you or forsake you. So don't be afraid when the bad stuff happens. Don't shy away from your devotion to the mission of being Jesus to a world in pain. Because Jesus says, this is how he closes, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Jesus says, how you treat me when the chips are down, how you treat me in front of people who are hostile towards you is how I will treat you in front of my heavenly Father. 
When the going gets rough, if you start to back down, if you start to deny me, disown me, put distance between you and me and the things that you say and the things that you do, you start to waver in your devotion to me or your devotion to the mission, then come the day that we stand together before the Father, I'll put some distance between me and you and say, that one's not with me. And the Father will judge you for the way you jumped ship on the mission. But he says, when the chips are down, if you acknowledge me, if you confess me, if you stick by me in what you say and in how you live, you remain faithful to the mission of being Jesus to a world in pain. Then on that day when we stand together before my father, I will put my arm around you and I will say this one is with me because those who endure to the end will be saved. So how will you respond? When the going gets tough in the mission of being Jesus to, to a world in pain. In 1939, the rumblings of war were traveling through London, England. They were hearing about the Nazi party and about invasions in other countries. They were hearing about bombers that had the capacity to level entire cities and the whole city was on edge. So the British government published a bunch of posters that were meant to boost morale and encourage the citizens to respond in a British way to the threat of war. A plain poster with a, with a plain background and a picture of the cross in the middle and five simple words that echo the words of Jesus. When we're faced with hostility on the mission of being Jesus to a world in pain. The message was this, keep calm and carry on. Let's pray. Father, we know because we've read the story, we're reading the story of your mission of bringing the healing love of God into the world. We know how you were treated. We know how you were treated in the end, that you were put to death on the cross for preaching a message of the love of God. And we don't always understand, God, why the message of God's love arouses such hostility and, and, and rejection from people, God, but we know that it comes. Would you fill us with your courage? Would you fill us with your strength? Would you fill us with a vision of the future, the coming kingdom? Would you fill us with a perspective on what matters? Would you remind us of how much you love us? And would you give us the courage to keep calm and carry on? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.